And our New Testament lesson is found in Philippians chapter 4. We're reading from verse 10 through 23. This is God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word, we pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and give us understanding. We ask that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Last night, I received a call from a good friend in Iowa, and among other things that he shared, he said, Chuck, did I tell you that my church is going bankrupt? I said, that's a great coincidence, because I'm preaching on money tomorrow. He went on basically to share the common experience of those who sit in pews. He said, well, we hear about money when the finances are bad, and as long as everything is all right, they don't meddle with money. But considering what Jesus says, it's not a wise strategy for us in church. And so I'll make a promise to you that we will not bring up money unnecessarily at Christ Church, and we will not bring it up simply when the finances are bad. Those times happen as well. But we'll bring it up in the course of Scripture when it's important for us to address, because Jesus says that money has the power to become a master over your life and to draw your affections away from God. And so to not talk about money and to only talk about it when the finances are bad is just plain irresponsible. And so direct, forthright is what I hope for here as we talk about money from the Apostle Paul because he addresses it. At the very end of his letter, to, a very loving letter to a church in Philippi that he has deep affections for, he thanks them for a gift in a way. And so it's essential for us this morning to reflect on what do our finances have to do with the gospel. And we see four things from Paul this morning about how our finances are intertwined with the gospel. And the first is this, is that our giving is an, is an expression of our partnership in the gospel. Look in verses 14 and 15 with me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me 
in giving and receiving except you only. Now, Paul says, no church entered into partnership with me except you only. The word partnership here is the word that we find all throughout the book of Philippians and the one that is the Greek word that I think every evangelical Christian knows, koinonia, okay? And it's a rich word that means something like togetherness, partnership, shared, or common, okay? And so Paul's vision of koinonia goes very deep. We share in a common mind, in a common heart, we find in chapter 2. We share in a common salvation through Jesus Christ. We have a common destiny. We have a common mission to advance the gospel to the nations. And so when he uses this word partnership, he's invoking all of that, and he does not exclude finances. That he sees the Philippians' gift that they gave him after he came and preached the gospel to them. And they gave so that he could go out around the Mediterranean preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He sees that they are partners. They are together with him. They are sharing something in common. And it's the mission of God to the nations. Now, there's some tricky things that Paul has to navigate, though, as a first century preacher. There were itinerant preachers who went around the Mediterranean world, and they made money. They made good money. It's not too different than today. They would gather clients who would become devoted followers, and those people would give them money for their sustenance, and oftentimes they became rich. They became known as hucksters. And so Paul, in verses 10 through 13, he is laboring to make it clear that he doesn't need their money. Do you see some of the awkward language? Not that I'm speaking in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying basically, thanks, but I didn't need it. Because he wants to distance himself from the hucksters who use people for money. And so Paul's trying to shield off that kind of relationship. The other kind of relationship that he's trying to shield off is he's trying to shield off this idea that in the ancient world there would be, um, there would be teachers who would have patrons and wealthy people would support them, and they would basically become their chaplain. And so because they had given to the teacher, the teacher was beholden to the people who gave. And so the teacher was to only talk about what the people really wanted to hear. He was somewhat of a slave and a servant of theirs. And Paul wants to avoid that kind of situation too because he sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, not one who's on mission to simply serve these people as to what they want to hear. And so Paul sees this rich idea of partnership together in the gospel where we're joined in God's mission to the world, where we're not simply becoming itinerant hucksters and preachers are not using people for money for their own ministries, but it's the ministry of the gospel to the world. And where the preacher is not somehow the owned by the congregation, but he sees something richer, fuller, a full-bodied participation in the mission of God. And so this is the first thing, is our giving is an expression of our partnership in the gospel. Now the second is our giving is a response to the gospel. In verse 15, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. Paul comes to Philippi, into this region, to preach the gospel. And it's important for us to be clear that they did not buy the gospel from Paul. 
There are examples of this in the book of Acts. But rather, Paul shows up in Philippi in Acts 16. He begins preaching, and he gathers a pretty rowdy bunch. He gathers a rich woman. He gathers a slave who was demon-possessed. And he gathers a suicidal Roman soldier. And that's a church. This wild, unruly band of people who otherwise wouldn't belong together. And they didn't come and buy something from Paul. They didn't give him money and convince him to teach them. He preached the gospel. He proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, that he's the name above all names, that he rules over heaven and earth. He's reconciled us to God through his blood on the cross. And people began to believe. They confessed Jesus was Lord, and then they began to give. Generosity, friends, is always second on our part. We can't buy God's favor. We can't ransom ourselves from him, as Psalm 49 said. We just can't. Only Jesus' blood can do that. And so our giving, though, is a response to this free favor that God has poured out on us. And so we freely begin to give ourselves to the world around us, and we use our finances to do that. So our giving is a response. Third, Paul also indicates that our giving is an investment. Look with me in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is the dynamic that Paul's creating where he's saying thank you, but he's also saying he didn't need it because he would have been okay because God would have supplied his needs. He says, I don't seek the gift from you. I don't seek the actual money, but I seek what you gain from this. And the metaphor he uses is something like money that's accruing compounded interest. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, at the beginning of the book of Philippians, look in verse 11. Paul has prayed for the church. In 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We said that this prayer at the beginning of the book of Philippians was driven in and will explode throughout the book. And this is one of the places that Paul is exploding it when he says, when he prays that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is what Paul is picking up now on when he says in verse 17 that not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, a godly or a virtuous life that's lived in the power of Christ will involve our finances. It will involve generosity. It will involve us giving to the mission of the church in the world. That this is part of what it means to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Jesus Christ at work in us, making us generous people. And Paul says that this is an investment. Tom Wright in his commentary explains this well. He says, Paul wasn't suggesting for a moment that they were thereby earning their salvation, that they were being justified by works, rather that God was delighted that their faith, hope, and love were finding this practical expression. To invest in the gospel is not to try to seek God's approval outside of Christ, but rather it is to bring this practical expression to our koinonia, to our partnership. It's to put hands and feet on it. 
And guys, we all know that we invest in what we find important. We invest in our children's educations. We invest in homes when we're able to. We invest in retirement so that we have provision at the end of our lives. We invest in all kinds of things that we determine our priorities. And what do your books say if they were to be laid open here today? It's a frightening thought. But what would they say? What do they say your priorities are? That's the challenge that Paul puts in front of us, that we are to invest in what we deeply value. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Using the financial metaphor of a treasure, Jesus says the gospel is worth more. And we go and sell everything. We liquidate in order to have this. And so our earthly riches, which are not wrong, our possessions, which are not wrong, they become relativized. And we're willing to invest because we see that the gospel and the mission of the gospel is more important. And is Jesus' kingdom, is His good news, is His mission, is it gripping you in that kind of way? where it reflects itself in your checkbook and on your credit card or on whatever other means you can use now electronically to pay your bills because our giving is an investment in the kingdom. Now fourth, Paul says that our giving is a sacrifice that pleases God. Follow with me in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul picks up on the Old Testament language of sacrifice here. And he says that the Philippians' gift that he's received through Epaphroditus while in prison and the other gifts that he's also received from them in times past that they are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so Paul once again is pointing, not that we buy God's favor with this, but that we can please God and that we can delight Him when we bring our faith to practical, tangible expression with our financial gifts. And you'll note that right after Paul tells them that the sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing to God. He then reminds them in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so yes, in your deep sacrifice, you can trust God that he is going to provide everything you need. And then what does he do in verse 20? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's a doxology where he proclaims the praise of God because of God's provision, because of the deep sacrifices of the people. Now, in traditional church structures, there was this thing called the offering. And the offering was taken amongst the people, and then the offering was brought forward. And typically, what was sung was the doxology, that God was blessed and praised for all that he had given. 
Do you see where that structure for worship came from? It's right here. It's announcing that God gives us everything, that we can trust Him, that we can make incredible sacrifice to give of ourselves to Him and to His kingdom. And friends, that's why the offering follows receiving the Word of God, because we receive His promise, and then we give ourselves to Him, and then we announce His praise. And this is how a worship service brings these values into our lives, to do that over and over, week by week, writes it into your heart, where it becomes second nature. Christian Smith, he's a sociologist at Notre Dame. He wrote a book called Passing the Plate. It was on American evangelical giving habits. Get ready. Americans are more generous in voluntary financial giving than citizens of most other comparably rich countries. And religious Americans are more generous with money than non-religious Americans. Among Christians, evangelicals are the most financially generous of all, second only to Mormons. Yet most American evangelicals are still not as generous as their churches teach or as they are objectively able to be, given their resources. In short, compared to other groups, evangelicals are not stingy, but compared to what they could and should give, they are not nearly as generous financially as they ought to be. And friends, the model that the New Testament puts in front of us is not simply to peg it on a certain percentage but it is to give of ourselves sacrificially, to know that it's pleasing to God, to know that it advances His kingdom and His mission in the world, and to give of ourselves. It's fine to use models like 10% to give, but it's even better to say, what does it mean for me to make sacrifice? What does it mean for me to give, to show that my priorities and my values are aligned with what God loves and what God wants in the world? That's the question for us to walk away with. A few years ago, I was serving in a church where there was a discussion on the session. And to be a member of the session, you had to agree to give 10% of your finances to this local church. It was a steep commitment. And there arose a question in the session because there was a new member joining and he objected to this standard. And so as the discussion started, it, it began around... Um, assuming that this person did not want to give 10% of their finances. And so the language was, well, he doesn't believe in tithing, so should we allow him to be a member of the session? And the response was interesting from one member and said, well, I don't believe in tithing either. Everybody looked at him because he was already a member of the group. Well, what are you doing here? Why, why can you join this group if you don't give 10% to this local church? We all agreed that that was the thing. He said, well... You know, in studies, and he was right about this, in studies in the Old Testament, you can find that tithing actually for Israel was about 23 and one-third percent of their income. They didn't quite have liquid resources like we do. He says, so are we all ready to tithe? Everybody kind of got quiet for a second. And he said, you know, I think the New Testament example is sacrifice, and that I object to the principle of being required to give 10%. But everyone knew that he gave more than 10%. He was the one person in the room qualified because he wasn't simply measuring up to a little 
standard. But he was driven by the example of Jesus, the fragrant offering from Ephesians 5 and verse 2, and that he wanted to offer fragrant offerings to God as well, to make sacrifice to his king, to show that this is what was most important, to show this is what he valued. So the last question for us is, how do we become generous people? Jesus warns us about money because he knows our hearts, and that within us all is the love of money and security and to hold on and have control. And like his parable, we'll be the man who builds bigger and bigger barns for ourselves. And so how do we become generous Two things to discuss here, and the first is that it does require contentment. Paul speaks about this in his own circumstances where he's giving an example for the Philippians. But in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That Paul was setting an example here for the Philippians who gave out of their own deep need, they make sacrifice, that the key to this generosity is finding contentment. Now, the other evening I was watching uh, American Ninja Warriors. This is a new show for me, but my sons are fascinated with it. They're creating American Ninja Warrior courses around the house and everywhere they go. So, but my middle son noticed that one of the contestants had a Bible verse on his shirt. And he said, Dad, he must be a Christian. And so I looked up quickly, and of course, it was Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To do this Ninja Warrior stuff, you do need something supernatural, I think. But this is quite apart from what Paul is speaking of. When he speaks about being able to do all things, he is talking specifically about plenty and hunger, abundance and need, being content up and down the scale, being pulled left and right. This is the contentment and the strength that Paul needs. And friends, that's the foundation of being a generous person. It is being content, trusting that God will provide your needs, being willing to give, being willing to make sacrifice. And the second thing it requires is this ultimately requires that we experience the generosity of God. The book of Philippians is about a very hospitable and generous God who gives of himself. If you remember back to chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the generosity of God where he intersects our world, he becomes nothing, and he takes on our sins and he destroys them in his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus is installed at the right hand of God, ruling over everything. 
heaven and earth are reconciled and we are reconciled to God as well. And we have to experience that generosity, that that's the primary thing to becoming a generous person. One of my favorite novels is John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. It's a story of the Joad family moving from Oklahoma to California during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. The family has a larger grouping traveling with them as they are stacked into the family car. Grandmother is lying on a mattress on top of the truck, piled on top of everything. It's a comical and yet extremely sad story. They arrive at one of the squatter camps where Tom, who is the, one of the younger sons, but he is also going to be one of the breadwinners when they arrive in California. He's young and fit and vital. Tom gets in a fight. He punches a deputy sheriff. And so shortly thereafter, the sheriffs return, a whole company of policemen, to find out who had punched out the deputy. They are narrowing it down to the tent where Tom Jode was hiding. And there is a preacher, a backslidden country preacher, who really is an awful fellow. His name is Casey. Up to this point in the novel, you despise him. He really is a reprobate. Casey steps up in front of the sheriff and says, I'm the one who punched him. And the deputy said, no, I don't recognize him. He said, because that's why I hit you. I'm giving you my paraphrase. And so you don't recognize me. I done it. And so Casey is whisked away. He's not seen again for at least 250 pages. He's gone. One of the family members is a man named Uncle John. And John's a drunk. He comes to the family just after Casey has been thrown into the police car. And he says, I've got something to confess. And they said, don't go confessing your sins. You don't need to go spread them out. He says, no, I've got to confess. And they said, well, if you have to. And he pulls out of his pocket $5. Now, the family had been surviving because they had all pulled their money together. They were eating very little on the edge of starvation. And here is Uncle John with $5, which was probably something more like $100 to us today. $5. And he says, I was keeping it back so I could go get drunk. But because of what Casey's gone and done, I need to give it. And friends, that's what happens to us when we experience the service of God, the generosity of God, when we see sacrifice and we experience it and we benefit from it, that like Uncle John, in all of his complicated problems, we move out of it and we move into this generous life and this is what God has done for us in Jesus. And so friends, this is our prayer. Not that we talk about money just in times of need but that we be well-disciplined with money, that we receive the wisdom of God, and that we take up this opportunity to partner with God in His mission to the world as Paul had opportunity to partner with the Philippians, and that the gospel will advance and grow, and it will be to your compounding credit that God would be well-pleased with your sacrifices. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often find our identity and we find our value and we place significance in money 
that's inappropriate. Forgive us for our sins and help us to be grasped and to be held by a vision of something deeper and more valuable. And that is your great kingdom and the reign of our Lord Jesus. And so will we become generous people as we recognize his great service of us, that he has given everything to us. And so may we return and make sacrifice unto him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.